get up, get, get up, get up. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast, the official podcast of the New York Mets. Never going to get tired of saying that. We just wrapped up a very short series out in Houston against the Astros, which didn't really go our way. Uh, Houston, we have a problem, maybe? Not really, actually. We're going to talk to you about why it's it's not a problem. One being the Houston Astros are really good. And two, there was some things that were positive to take out of this game. We're always going to find a nice spin zone on this. So that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. But we will also talk about the ugly because that's what we do. We go through all the games, as you know, recap everything that happened, as well as preview the next series. We also have mailbag to talk about and a little bit of fun Mets history along with a little bit of a minor league draft because Max Scherzer, of course, made his first rehab start. But before we do get going into the episode, you guys know what you need to do. Make sure you're following us on all our social media, at MetsUp Everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And if you're watching us on YouTube, no longer on the MetsUp YouTube channel, just on the Mets YouTube channel. So really easy. You guys can't miss it. You know it. Subscribe over there. If you're following... <clears throat> If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, wherever you get your podcasts, you will be able to find us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review, share it. It really does help grow the podcast. Without further ado, let's bring in my co-host, James Shiano. James, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Back in the uh, back in the regular digs. Back in the regular digs, fresh off our first official episode with the Mets. Felt great. Too technically. To, oh, yeah, too technically, because we did drop the bonus episode for you guys yesterday, the Todd Zeal and David Cohn interviews, which were awesome. And if you didn't listen to those, go give them a listen after this one. Let's go ahead and just start talking about this Astro series. It wasn't great. No, we cautioned you guys on Tuesday that Trevor Williams against the Astros was going to be a difficult proposition. And you kind of sensed right off the bat that it that was a game that would be unlikely to win for the Mets. Yeah, it, Trevor Williams has been great for us, I think, this year in the role that he's had. He kind of was this stretch man at the beginning of the year, and because of all the injuries, he's now kind of taken over this last starting pitcher role for us. And to be fair, he didn't really pitch poorly. Like, his pitching performance is not the reason we lost this game. No, I'm not trying to disparage Trevor Williams anyway. Almost any pitcher would have a tough time against that Astros lineup, and especially one like Trevor Williams who doesn't have as many tools in his tool bag as some other pitchers in baseball. But from the first inning, Astros hit four balls pretty solidly. They had two more in the second. You kind of just felt like something bad was going to happen. Then the third inning began. Jose Altuve hit a home run. Jordan Alvarez hit a massive home run. I told everybody, you don't want Jordan Alvarez facing Trevor Williams because bad things are going to happen. I was right. Yeah, Jordan Alvarez casually having one of the best offensive seasons in all of baseball. His numbers are off the charts, and we saw him absolutely dominate the Mets this series. I think it was interesting, too, something that we've talked about in the past on our podcast, a pitcher like Trevor Williams facing a lineup the second time, especially the Houston Astros, whose top of the lineup is among the best with anybody in Major League Baseball. I don't. I, I get, understand what Buck had to do there because we need some length, but you can see that that could definitely be a problem. Yeah, if Trevor Williams had left this outing after two innings, it would have been fine. Like, that kind of shows you the natural limitations that almost any pitcher has when hitters see them multiple times. And you did see the difference between that first inning and that third inning because all of these same guys who hit the ball really well came to the plate in the first and hit it well, but just like a little bit less well. Like fly balls, like good hit fly balls, like 300-ish feet away. And then they just got over the wall. Even Kyle Tucker, after that Alvarez home run, put a real good ride into one. And Trevor Williams got out of the fourth inning. He got through a very, got through a not super good bottom of the Astros lineup. It's kind of weird that they have this like incredible five and just like falls off a cliff. But when it was all said and done through four innings, Trevor Williams faced 17 Astros. 12 balls were put in play. Four were over 100 miles an hour off the bat. Three more only over 95 miles an hour off the bat. 
and only two ground balls of those 12 balls put in play. That is not a recipe for success in Minute Maid Park or against this Astros lineup, and it just that just happened. And all things being said, though, he did only give up three runs. It was only three runs at that point. Yeah. It was more so annoying that the Mets just couldn't really get to Jose Urquidy, which we talked about him in the last episode, too. He's a solid pitcher. This is just kind of what Jose Urquidy does. Yeah, all of Jose Urquidy's pitches, if you guys were watching the game, you can kind of see that his fastball, while it doesn't have like really good velocity, he kind of sits at 93-94 range. It does have that like upward-seeming movement at the end. His changeup moves very well. I think he got Lindor in a really nice outside yeah. changeup that just faded away from him. The slider solid. The whole the whole tool, ba- tool bag is solid. Nothing spectacular, but it's all very solid. Like Who's a hitter that's like that? Ah, man, that's a good question. Someone who just kind of does everything well. Ooh, that's a tough one to think about. Someone who's a hitter like that, who's better than Urquidy is as a pitcher, I would say is Canna. Okay, that's I was thinking Canna a little bit, honestly. But another comp I kind of have for that is kind of Jerickson Profar, like the new modern Jerickson Profar, where okay. like he barrels it kind of like league average. He hits like kind of more fly balls than league average. He strikes out kind of less than league average. It all is like it's fine. Like no, he's not good at anything. Yeah. He runs a little bit. Like he does make a good amount of contact, a good amount of power, but nothing crazy. Everything's okay. That's what Urquidy does. Yeah, it's, it, that's what Urquidy does. Sometimes it's not that good, and sometimes it is. And we had guys on the second inning, the third inning, the fourth inning, just could not scratch one across. No, couldn't scratch one across. We really, in this series specifically, felt like we missed the presence of Jeff McNeil in this lineup badly. He just makes this lineup so much deeper. He makes this lineup so much better offensively. And we talk about one of the guys who's been the best in all of baseball with runners in scoring position this year. And he just didn't get those opportunities because he was, you know, healing that sore hamstring, right? Yeah, and you kind of felt that a lot in the fourth inning when the Mets had bases loaded, one man out, and you had Wilder Westbar and J.D. Davis coming to the plate, and they both struck out against Urquidy and kind of uncompetitive-ish at-bats against a 93-mile-an-hour fastball with a plus-moving profile, but still just not... They, you, you, left, you left you missing McNeil there. Yeah, no, definitely could have used McNeil. The game really got broken open, though, when Chase and Shreve came into the game. He just wasn't sharp for what feels like kind of the consecutive outings for him. And he even talked about it after the game that they're looking at his stuff and sometimes it's nice and it's exactly where they want it to be. And sometimes it's not. And he's like, and I just don't really know why. I'm not really sure why my splitter doesn't break like it does sometimes. He's like, the numbers are great when they're good, which that kind of makes sense. But the consistency hasn't been there. And he acknowledged that. Yeah, but the other side of that coin, Adonis Medina came in after Shreve and did a really, really, really nice job saving this bullpen on a day when it had to work very hard after a four-game series with the Marlins, no off day. That was very nice. It kind of gave the Mets a little bit of breathing room. Not breathing room, that's not the word, but just yeah. kind of it kind of took the load off their backs for a little bit. It was very nice for Don Medina to do that. Jose Siri, though, did hit an absolute nuke of a home run, and he pimped it too. Now, I would love to get your take on this. What did you think about Jose Siri's pimp job? Did you like it? Did you hate it? I, I mean, I don't really care that much about the pimp job. You're beating a team by a lot, and you're Jose Siri. You might as well do it. I did see that. He also hit the ball onto the tracks. No, it was, I mean, it was no. Yeah, like, I, I, I will very rarely chastise a player for a pimp job, only if it's, like, a situation where it's very clear that there is a feud and you're going to get someone plunked on your own team. Yeah. Which Dusty Baker alluded to. Yeah. But that didn't happen because that's not really the way baseball is anymore. And also, the Mets and Astros, there's no bad blood. Escobar did take a little exception, though. I don't know if you saw that. I'm sure that. a lot yeah. of guys took exception. I'm sure Buck took exception. Lindor probably even took exception. But it was whatever. It's Jose Siri. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he really smoked that ball. Yeah, he crushed it. Yeah. But the other question is, and I had moved off of the television to the radio by this point in the game, 
Pete and Escobar each had home runs before this happened. Did either of them gaze into the night sky? No, they put their head down. They ran. Okay. There was there was no watching it. I mean, Pete crushed it. Crawford boxes. Imagine if Pete played in Houston for Se- 170 home games. runs. Yeah, he'd break the record. Such an absolute bam box there. But I don't think that had anything to do with Jose Siri. And I mean, Dusty Baker having his comments too. I think it kind of just showed that they weren't pleased with what he did as they were up. But it also doesn't seem like he was that upset. It's really wasn't that big of a yeah, deal. Yeah, I'm sure it got people outside of baseball more angry than people inside of baseball. Yeah, and this, I mean, you guys know it. Once a series, this was the poop fest. This was the game. Do that for one was just kind of lost from the beginning. You wanted to maybe sneak one out here. You thought there was maybe a chance because Jose Urquidy, but at the end of the day, the Astros hitters were just simply better than the Mets, and they end up getting the win in game one. Now, game two, we had Carlos Carrasco going into this one. He's been pitching so well for us this year. We're feeling a little bit better going up against Luis Garcia, who was their young, I don't want to say ace last year, but young budding star last season who hasn't been as sharp. Not that sharp. He's still a good pitcher with a very solid floor, but the real issue here was just Carrasco. Another time... During a start away from City Field, it just looked like he was a little bit uncomfortable, not as sharp, not as effective. You blinked. The Astros scored four runs before they recorded an out. Yeah, I was uh, talking to some friends watching the game, actually, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, what? No, what's going on? Like, this this isn't how it's supposed to be. Carrasco's been so money for us, so it was a little shocking to see him go back to a little bit of the 2021 ways with having a little bit of a nightmare first inning. And with the nightmare first inning, even after the barrage that took place of an Al- Jose Altuve walk, Michael Brantley double, Alex Bregman bomb, and Jordan Alvarez just absolute moonshot. So good. Every other ball in play felt like a fly ball to the warning track. Like, it felt like you didn't really have a second to breathe. Like, I was almost happy to get out of those for that first inning with only four runs. Kyle Tucker hit another long fly ball after those guys went yard, and you kind of heard, you know, Minute made kind of get up on their feet like, oh, again, a third? But luckily it stayed in. Yeah, he just wasn't sharp in the first inning, and maybe the back issue that we saw a little bit later could have it could have been playing into this. Maybe he just wasn't feeling 100%. It's possible. He did kind of round out a little bit better after this first inning. The first five balls in play by the Astros were hit hard, as in they were hit over 95 miles an hour. When you came around a few innings later, Jordan Alvarez hit one of the hardest home runs I've ever seen, 114 miles an hour off the bat. That ball got out in under three seconds. Like, he hit it, I went, oh my god, that's crushed. Really happy I shouted them out, because I feel like there are a lot of more casual baseball fans, especially fans who, like, more are going to focus on the Mets, who won't don't play fantasy baseball, not staying up and watching the West Coast games. They're not as aware that a guy like Jordan Alvarez is, like, a true superstar being developed out there in Houston. I mean, we were talking to our producer, John, before recording this episode, and he was telling us how his numbers compared to Judge, just strictly offensively, are pretty comparable. If you did a blind, you know, test, there's a chance you're picking Jordan Alvarez just as many times as you're picking Judge's numbers. The numbers are unbelievable on the offensive side. He just obviously is a DH, so he doesn't get that value. Yeah, and lefty, right? It's a little different, but the guy's a freak. I just do want to talk about Carrasco for a few minutes here because this did feel like 2021 Carrasco again, which is a little scary. His velocity was down across the board, which is something that is a signal for injury, and we did see him leave the game with back tightness later. It was kind of also, I don't want to say it was funny because he left with injury, but there was like a moment where he just hesitated, and then in one second, Buck Hefner, trainer, all out at the same time. It was like a brigade. It's like they they knew. They were like, "Uh, that's not a normal action for Carlos Carrasco. And speaking of abnormal, his four-seam fastball, that has been a pitch that has been very good this year, very effective and very um, reliable for him, more so than last year. Had no whiffs, which is something that is a major red flag. His slather only had two after that pitch has been, I would say, hot for the last month or so. Another red flag. And also something else that our producer John pointed out to us before the show is that Carrasco has ridiculous home road splits this year. And if you think back to his 
bad starts this year. You think of this one, you think of Anaheim, and you think of St. Louis. Yeah. And those three bad starts, because the split is not really going to give you a great sample for ERA, has ballooned his row the ERA to over six, while his home sits around three. Yeah, and of course, playing in City Field, one of the more pitcher-friendly parks right now in all of baseball, you can definitely see that maybe he's a little more comfortable, maybe gets a little more better outcomes, but... Carl Krask has only allowed two home runs all season at City Field. Jordan Alvarez hit two today and two at-bats. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough outing. It was a tough outing. He's not going to be able to pitch as well as he has every single one. It was just a little disappointing that in a game where the Mets didn't have, you know, too much stacked up against them, we kind of got in this 4 nothing hole immediately. Yeah, it was a game that you kind of hoped that Carrasco was able to give you a better opportunity to win than he did because Luis Garcia is a good pitcher he hasn't like you mentioned before hasn't been as good this year in a sophomore campaign compared to his rookie but he really had a swing and threw some stuff early it was all forcing fastballs and colors which is kind of the book in Garcia which is kind of a reason he has struggled a little bit he hasn't been able to develop a breaking ball or an offseason pitch as well as I think the Astros would like but those two pitches were great he was placing them very well that color especially just outside to righties he really it's a hard pitch to track because it comes in pretty hard. It still has a good movement. Each of those pitches had seven whiffs, and he had 20 on the day before he left the game. And he's also a little herky-jerky. Even though his like release is relatively normal, he rocks the baby. And Keith and Gary were very fixated on this in the first inning. Keith was talking about when he would start his load. And when he said it, I was like, yeah, but what if he takes another step? Like That's what he does. He keeps you off balance. That's one of the reasons why he's great as well. Just didn't hit him. Didn't hit him at all. Until the sixth inning. Mets actually got something going here and gave us fans some reason for hope. One of those classic Mets rallies that we thought we've seen so many times this year. Nimmo got a leadoff walk, which is that's quintessential Brandon Nimmo. Marte lays a double, brought Nimmo home, and Lindor hit a single. So suddenly we have two on, no out, one in. Pete Alonso's due up as, I believe at that point, the tying run. Yeah, no, it was at this point in the game. I don't know about you guys, you know, other Mets fans out there. I thought the Mets were coming back. I oh, thought there too. was no doubt. There was, what, no outs at this point, right? And they had all their guys on. The top of the order had been hitting. Really seemed like they started to figure something out. Pete got the sack fly, which, of course, we would have liked more. But that's still a productive out. That's still good baseball. And then Giorbe got the double, which was like, this lineup's all of a sudden cooking. It's it's clicking. And here we go. The Mets, it's a 5-3 game with guys on base. And even after that, against a very tough reliever, Ryan Stanek, who I think has some of the best stuff of any reliever in all of baseball, 100 miles an hour with a good slider. Mark Hanna got down two strikes and worked a very, very, very nice walk. And this is something that the Mets' bottom of the order hitters have done very well this year. I asked our producer, John, new stats guy, to go through and get some of the uh, kind of the bottom meat of the order, leaving out 8-9, because we know the 8-9 spots in any order, unless you're the Dodgers, is going to be an uphill battle. But five, six, seven hitters on the Mets this year have a 328 on on-base percentage, which is third best in all of baseball. And if you add in the 8-hitter, five, six, seven, eight, 8 it's a 331 on on-base percentage, which is the best in all of baseball. So that's a lot of Marcana, It's a lot of Luis Guillorme. It's even a lot of J.D. Davis sometimes when he's going well, and that's a lot of Jeff McNeil getting on base consistently, and even some Tomas Nito at times. Yes, yeah, and... A lot of those guys finding ways on base to sustain these rallies, and it has been a big reason for a lot of these big Mets comeback wins this season so far. And it felt like this game had that written all over it. Escobar, though, came up, and Escobar, who hit a home run in Game 1, hoping again, maybe starting to heat up, saw him play well in the last game of the series against the Marlins, just had a really bad at-bat. I just think there's no way around it. He got down 0-1 to Stanek, threw a pitch inside, just kind of got beat and popped up to the infield. And that was a time when bases are loaded. You, just, you have to put the ball in play better than that. Just because even a, even a deep fly ball or a medium, shallow, medium to shallow fly ball scores a run there, it's just it's really crushing when you're pushing a team like this and pushing and pushing and you just kind of get beat. 
And you saw Escobar show some frustration for what seemed like one of the first times I've seen him do that this year. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's pretty clear that his poor play of late is wearing on him. I also do want to tell Mets fans, it's kind of hilarious, but coming into the day, he's only been about 5% worse than league average with the bat in terms of WRC+, which it feels like he's worse than that, but it's just kind of the league's run environment is so bad that Escobar is still kind of sitting within the kind of expected range that you probably thought he was going to be between like 5% worse than league average and 5% better. It's kind of the spot he sat for most of his career. Last year, he was better than that, but I digress because Dom Smith came up after that. Dom, who already had a double in this game, looking for the Dom Smith redemption tour, also had a not-so-great at-bat against Ryan Stanek, who is really good stuff. The pitch he struck out on was disgusting. Yeah. I mean, like, I can't, I can't blame Dom. I think in the moment I was a little bit harsher on him than afterwards, spending a little time looking over what happened and being like, oh, yeah, Ryan Stanek was disgusting. He was just better than Dom. That's going to happen. But it was, I think, just the culmination of bases loaded, no outs, and we really only came out of it with three runs, was a little bit tough to swallow, especially for a game that you don't go down 4 nothing, 5 nothing early and think you can win one. And at that moment, it wasn't just that I thought the Mets could come back. I thought they were going to win the game. Yeah, especially also because I mentioned this in the preview last episode, this Astros bullpen is incredible. Statistically, probably the best or second best bullpen in all of baseball. And you saw that on display with Stanek getting out of that jam with flying colors. You got 100 mile an hour fastball, wipeout slider. Hector Neris, who is not the Philadelphia Phillies Hector Neris anymore. This guy is reborn, reinvented, renewed, and he put the Mets down with ease, which is something we've almost never seen Hector Neris do. No, yeah, I, I saw a lot of tweets uh, about people being like, oh, Hector Neris is in, like, this is good. I would have agreed with you if he was still in Philadelphia, but because he's with the Astros, a pitching factory, you just, you knew he was, he got, you got to know he's a different pitcher. Speaking of pitching factories, could you guys imagine a Rafael Montero diving up the bottom of the zone, pounding the strike zone, getting guys to roll over on everything? That one hurt. That one hurt. Real bad. That one was, that one stung a little bit just because he was supposed to be our top prospect. He was the guy who was hyped up over Syndergaard and other names. But... I was at Rafael Montero's Major League debut the day before Jacob DeGrom's Major League debut where the Mets were shut out by Masahiro Tanaka on a Friday night. Oh man, I don't want to think about that. that I also don't, ingrained in my mind. I don't really want to talk about Rafael Montero anymore. I, I'd like to no. forget that he was dominant against us. <laughs> Guy's really good. Then Ryan Presley comes in the ninth inning and is throwing 97 with a ridiculously moving curveball that goes down, it goes out. Mets had no chance against these relievers so you had that opportunity in the sixth inning when it seemed like Dusty Baker might have left Luis Garcia in for a little bit too long third time through the order basically only throwing fastballs you had your shot you couldn't cash in and you lose the game yep you lose the game big shout out to our bullpen though again we talked about Adonis Medina stepping up in game one how about Yoan Lopez Tommy Hunter Joelli the guys that maybe you don't expect to have the biggest of impacts and granted we weren't winning so it wasn't high pressure situations but what did we get? Almost four or five innings out of these guys of really good baseball? Three, four and a third innings between those three guys with no earned runs. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. Against this Astros lineup. Yoan Lopez looked really good. Falk hero, man. I love that guy. And, of course, Tommy Hunter. The legend of Tommy Hunter, the guy still yet to give up a run for the New York Mets. <laughs> it's kind of funny, honestly. It's also, it seems like it was basically the same time of year, too, when he became his legend last year. And it was it was a brief. You know, the, the, our brightest stouts burn... Our, our brightest stars burn out the quickest, but I'm happy to see Tommy Hunter back. And I can't wait to get some uh, some more data on his pitch movement to see if there's actually something that can stick around. Yeah, I mean, he was he was disgusting. He's retired 10 of the 11 batters he's faced this year. I Funny. mean, I, Tommy Hunter, This we've talked about A, B, C team bullpen. This C team bullpen, this series really stepped up, and it's got to make you feel better. I know it's really hard, Mets fans, to feel good about anything after losing two to the Astros like we did, but at least it's got to feel good knowing that are guys who aren't supposed to be doing the heavy lifting actually can make an impact on this team. 
Yeah, and that kind of goes to show something else we mentioned last episode, that while this Mets bullpen has seemed bad at times, I think every bullpen in baseball seems bad at times because every single time your bullpen blows a game or gives up a collection of runs, it feels like, I don't know, the world is falling down around you and there's nothing else that can happen. It's like knowing your offensive lineman in football. Yeah. Knowing the guy's name is probably one of the worst things unless he's like elite all-pro kind of thing. But if you know who your left guard is, that's probably not a good thing. Same with like the third corner. Yeah, if you get know the guy's name, it's not good. But it's like kind of with baseball, when you blow a save, like you said, it's just a lot easier to remember the bad than it is the good. Definitely. But gotta shout these guys out because in this series, the Mets got less than eight innings from their two starters combined, which is a big change from what the Mets have gotten this year. So glad that we were able to dip into the depths of our bullpen. Also with Seth Lugo out on the paternity list and game one of this series, Drew Smith was unavailable. Uh, Edwin was probably unavailable. So we didn't really have a lot to work with bullpen-wise. And big shout-out to these guys for getting it done and bridging us to the next series. Yeah, Mets, one of the few series losses that we have this year, losing two to the Houston Astros, one of the few times that we've lost back-to-back games all season long. I think it's the fifth time. Yeah, uh, I know a lot of people, I think, want to jump to conclusions, get really aggressive, talk about trades, talk about, you know, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? The Mets haven't lost three straight all year. So the fact that they lost to the Astros, who are... One of the best teams in all of baseball. So the Mets lost both these games in Houston. The first time they've been swept all year. For everybody not watching on YouTube, I used air quotes because I don't really count a two-game series as a sweep. But if Mets fans want to think back a little bit before we kind of move away from the Astros, if it feels like we have not been able to win a game in Houston in a long time, you would be correct. The Mets have actually lost eight consecutive games in Houston, dating all the way back to 2011. Yeah, I actually have the box score up here. We're going to have some fun. We like to drop some random facts and numbers every once in a while. And for names. You guys. And names, yes. May 15th, 2011, the Mets beat the Astros 7-4. to Chris Capuano was on the mound for the Mets that game. That's actually the second time that season he had beaten the Astros, which is kind of a weird coincidence that a team that you don't play too often. That The Astros were also in the National League still at this time, which is also crazy to talk about. If you want to say Mets lineup, Jose Reyes, Josh Tolley was hitting two, David Wright three, Beltron four, Jason Bay five, Daniel Murphy six, Justin Turner playing second base, hitting seventh, Jason Pridey playing center field, hitting eighth, and then Chris Capuano on the mound. The highlights of this game, Justin Turner hit a home run and a double and drove in five runs, and the Mets win this one. Unbelievable. Jason Isringhausen got a hold for the Mets in this game. Taylor Buckles pitched for the Mets. K-Rod got the save. I mean, there are some deep cuts here for you Mets fans. That's how long it's been since we've won a game in Houston. It has been quite some time. We were freshmen in high school. Yeah, oh my God. I don't want to think about me as a freshman <laughs> right now. 26, that's, that's 11 years ago. Yes. <laughs> oh God, awful. Terrible, shocking, but that's it. We can't, it's tough to win these games here. Luckily, we will get the Astros at home next week, though, so everyone get excited for that after this road series in Miami. We're coming back for what should be another fun two-game set against the Astros at home. Let's look to sweep them there. Yeah, right? And it's also weird that that's another two-game series Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. Exactly like this one. This schedule is bizarre. No, it's it's super strange. Now, the Astros series wasn't fun, but we do have some, some good news coming here. Max Scherzer, Mad Max, of course, we've been itching for this guy to come back, and it looks like he's a step closer to being back on this New York Mets team. He made a rehab start out in Binghamton, and James, I know you got the stats on him. How'd he fare? He fared pretty well. I mean, we always like to say whenever a guy does extraordinarily well in one of these rehab starts, he's, he's back, and when they're not, when they do something even kind of not that good, they're working on stuff. 
Scherzer faced 14 batters, got six strikeouts, which you hope Max Scherzer would do even at 85% against double-A players. Gave up three hits and a home run, though, on his last batter of the game before he was removed, which I believe was in the fourth inning. Yeah. Got to about 55, 60 pitches in this one, so seems like that means he's one step away from throwing 75 to 80. It's, we still don't know officially whether that is going to come again with a minor league affiliate or with the Mets this coming Sunday. I I would say right now we're so close to this point where I wouldn't rush it. I, no. would, I would do everything possible to make sure that everything is perfect before he steps on the mound at City Field, hopefully next weekend against the Texas Rangers, but... The fact that we are as close as we are, and it's we're still not yet in July, makes me so warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah, no, we should be using a little bit of kitty gloves here with Max Scherzer. We don't want to rush him back because this we know baseball season is long. We need him for the end of the season. We need him for the long summer that's coming up here. We don't need to rush him back to face the Marlins in a, in a start at home. No, no, on the road. Now, uh, oh yeah, on the road in Miami. Bad. In Miami, but. To be fair, I think the the most memorable thing about this entire game, though, is what Max Scherzer said after the game. He was talking to some reporters, and he said, I want to get out of there so bad. I want to be in the big leagues, not be a Rumble Pony. And this kind of caused a little bit of a stir. Some big diehard Rumble Ponies fans out there. And to be fair, I get it. That's one of the better names, I think, in minor league baseball. Definitely one of the better names in minor league baseball. But there are also so many fantastic names across minor league baseball. Some old, some new, north, south, east, west. Even though... There are a lot less minor league teams than there were a few years ago. Some amazing names have still stuck around, and it's that's something I think would be fun for the two of us to maybe you know draft right now. Yeah, spark a little, spark a little fun conversation. You guys at home watching or listening, whatever you can do, let us know on Twitter or any social media, even in the YouTube comment sections. Who do you think had the best draft? Because that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to make what five picks? I think five, three. We'll see how we feel after the third. Okay, and uh, do a snake draft. Yeah, of course. All right, you want to go first, or you want me to go first? You go first. All right, I'm going to go first. And I'm going to go ahead and go with the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Their logo's phenomenal. The name's phenomenal. In minor league baseball is fun. And the name Trash Pandas, that's a fun name. Now, I don't know where Rocket City is. I don't. I have no clue. Rocket City? I think it might be Alabama. My my knowledge of locations. Oh, you know where I think that is? Where? I do think that is Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, because, because Drew. Drew, he does the Rocket City Moon Men. Shout out to our friend, not the expert, big YouTuber, good friend of ours. But yeah, Rocket City Trash that's Pandas, so that's going to be my number one overall pick. That was a good pick. I thought you were going there. That's kind of why I gave you the pick. I have two now that I think are going to be pretty fun. First one, which I think is a really fun name. The Everett Aqua Sox. That's a good one. Aqua Sox doesn't even make any sense. What's what, You can't put a sock in water. I remember the Everett Aqua Sox. I don't know if their jerseys are still like this, but back in the day had elite camo jerseys with blues and greens and whites, all these crazy colors, and the jerseys were sick. Those are sick. But no, actually, I don't even know that's sick. Take that out. <laughs> Everett Aqua Sox, just a bizarre name. Doesn't make any sense. My next doesn't make any sense. My next pick is a fun one. R.I.P to the Sugarland Skeeters, but born now out of that is the Sugarland Space Cowboys. That yeah. is my second pick. You stole you stole my pick. You stole my pick. I'm gonna have to scramble for another one here. Their jerseys and everything as well, the branding is phenomenal. Space Cowboys. So that's also the Astros, which is kind yeah. of topical it a little is, bit. In a way. My second pick is gonna be the Richmond Flying Squirrels. So we got Jeff McNeil, call him the Flying Squirrel. We got it. We gotta give some love to the Richmond Flying Squirrels with another great nickname, another great logo. Shout out to Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, Richmond, fun town. Good fun. city. I've, I've honestly never spent any time in Richmond. I've been there a few times. Almost went to that college. It's a cool place to hang. All right, and then for my final pick here and pick number three, I'm going to be a little bit of a homer. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my Got to show some love here to the Mets. I think the Brooklyn Cyclones. It's a good one. I really like the Brooklyn Cyclones. The logo's phenomenal. It's a classic logo. The Cyclones is cool because, of course, the roller coaster out in Coney Island. 
And it's just, I think overall, just one of the better minor league organizations from a branding perspective in the entire league. So for me, Brooklyn Cyclones, call me a homer. I'm a Mets fan. Sorry. I mean, how many baseball stadiums are there on a beach in the whole world? Can't be many. No. Can't be many. The Cyclones are elite. Fun time. Fun time. Shout out to the Seven Line having their event, I think, at Brooklyn Cyclones game this weekend. Yeah, it should be coming up. Yeah. So if we're only going to stick with three, I have my third pick right now ready to go. A team that is near and dear to my heart. Really funny name. The Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. That's a good one. Miami Marlins affiliate. That is a hell of a name right there. There are just so many good names in minor league baseball. I mean, we didn't even mention the Biscuits. That's no. a classic one. The Batavia Muck Dogs. Muck Dogs, yeah. I think I saw the Wood Ducks, and I think there's also the Rubber Ducks. We have the Frisco Rough Riders, the Midland Rockhounds, the Hillsboro Hops. The Hillsboro Hops is another good I'm one. I'm a sucker yeah. for alliteration. <laughs> the, the names in minor league baseball are fun. I want you guys, though, to give your opinion. Who do you think had a better draft, me or James? Let us know in the YouTube comments. If you're on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you're seeing this, comment who won this draft. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say. I'm scrolling right now. The the Clinton Lumber Kings. I don't even... Is that a real one? These might be some old ones now on this Google page, but... The Salem Volcanoes? That's funny. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Minor League Baseball, always a good time. And hopefully Max Scherzer is right. Hopefully he is not a rumble pony anymore. We want him back in City Field. Healthy as a New York Met. Healthy, comfortable, and ready. Yes. Which now leads us to the mailbag. Because, of course, two-game series, a little bit of a shorter episode. But we want to make sure that you guys get some interaction with us. That's one of the things we love to do on this podcast is get involved with the Mets fans. So we asked you guys on Twitter, at MetsUp, to give us your questions for the mailbag. And we got a bunch of good questions. We're going to dive into as many as we possibly can and give you guys shout-outs as well. So make sure you're following us so that the next mailbag episode you can get involved as well. First question coming from a day one listener, very loyal follower, Nick Kowal at the Koala underscore four. Frequently, we take his questions on the mailbag because he's such a big fan. We interact with him a lot. It gives you guys something to, something, something to work up to here. Do you think Yorme should be the everyday starter at third base over Escobar until he gets right at the plate? And this is, I think, kind of a multifaceted question because you're dealing with a veteran who has a long track record of being very good in the major leagues. You're dealing with a guy who probably, for the first time in his career, is struggling to the level he is. And you can just see that Eduardo Escobar, he's really internalizing this. He's very upset by his struggles. He's very frustrated with his own play. He had a great quote after the game saying that I understand the frustrations of the fans. I'm a professional baseball player, so I'm trying to do the best I possibly can. One day, one day, I'm going to give them the reason to cheer for me. Which, you hear a guy say that, and that is like, all right, that makes you motivated and feel good. But you also look at the other side of the coin, and he's just, he's simply not producing right now. And if you can only start two of Escobar, McNeil, or Guillaume in a given day, it's pretty clear the two guys that are hitting the ball better. Yeah, and I think right now, they should be platooning Guillaume and Escobar, because Escobar is hitting left-handed pitching really well this year. His numbers against lefties are significantly better than against righties. So if we're talking batting average, 292 versus lefties, 206 versus righties. Batting average, not that important, but hey, it's a fun stat. Some people still care. On base percentage, better against left-handed pitching, and the power has been there against the lefties. His OPS is hovering around the 900 range against lefties, where against righties, he's kind of struggling to get above that 600 range. So he's barely at 500. Yeah, I, yeah, he's, he's, I can't do math. No. I'm, I'm a YouTuber. Right? Math yeah. <laughs> is not in my forte by any means. That's why I talk to a camera all day. But I think against lefties, Escobar has been very effective this year, and that at least maybe for the next week or so should maybe be his role, at least if I was managing the team. I know I'm not, so it doesn't really matter. But the way that Giorme's been hitting righties, on the other hand, 343 average, 417 on base, 422 slugging, 
those numbers are phenomenal. I mean, I know it's a smaller sample because he's only really started playing a lot recently in the last month plus, but Guillaume, we've seen him play enough this year. We know this guy's a ball player, and we've been praising him since we've started this podcast. And he's been ticking up. He's been hitting the ball harder and harder as the year has gone on. We've seen Luis Guillaume get some exit velocities in the hundreds over the last few weeks, over the last few weeks, which is something that you very, very rarely saw in his first few years in the league. And we mention this all the time. Luis Guillorme just makes play after play in the infield that just makes your jaw drop. Him and Lindor turned a sweet double play in game one of this game where Guillorme made a nice pick behind the bag and threw the ball. Even though he was on the bag, his momentum was moving in the opposite direction. Had the wherewithal to flip the ball kind of high, let Lindor grab it, get himself to the base, and come and throw the ball really well with his momentum moving towards first. The guy's just a special infielder. It's like something you've never seen before. Yeah, I think I think the perfect way to utilize them, honestly, is just split that playing time. Put the guys in the scenarios that they will succeed in the most, I think. And Escobar has succeeded against left-handed pitching. Giorme has been great against righties. It feels like that might be maybe an oversimplified way to fix this, but right now I think you got to at least try it. It is, but it's also a situation where you're in a veteran clubhouse with a veteran manager, and there's a veteran player who was paid to perform a role, and it might be kind of... It, that's, that'll be a tough conversation for Buck Showalter. I mean, that is one of the benefits of having a guy like Buck Showalter as the manager, where if you do have to change things up, he probably knows the way to manicure the situation and do it in a way that keeps everyone in the clubhouse, including Escobar, still thinking the right way, moving towards the, the one singular goal this team has. It's going to be interesting to see how this situation unfolds over the next few weeks. Yeah, we'll definitely see how it plays out, especially because Miami does have some left-handed pitching in their uh, rotation. Absolutely. Okay, another question coming in from Eric Briggs, who's at, is not Eric Briggs, it's John Smith, whatever it is. On a level of 1 to 10, how much of a prospect hugger are you guys? How much of the system would you be able to stomach shipping out in August if it meant a better positioned October in 2022? So... My take up until, honestly, probably the last few years is that I will always trade prospects for bona fide stars. The thing is, I, they need to be bona fide stars. Like, unfortunately, we're seeing P. Crow Armstrong kind of flourish in Chicago, and we no longer have Javi Baez, so that one might, you know, bite us in the butt. Who's playing horribly who's in Detroit. Playing, yeah, who's playing horribly. But at the same time, like, we're not trading Francisco Alvarez. There's no chance. You can't do it. We're not trading Brett Beatty. We're not trading Ronnie Mauricio probably even right now unless you get a big-name guy, pitcher maybe. It's tough. I'm not a prospect hugger by any means. I, I will make the right trade if it does make this team better because the ultimate goal of 2022 is to win the World Series. And you should, if, if there's a move that makes you win the World Series, you got to make it. But I think you do have to be a little bit careful because we have a bunch of guys that look like they'll be significant MLB players. One thing I'll push back from what you said is the fact that if we're doing anything for 2022 to make us win the World Series, you would do it. Something I, I probably... I'm not really a prospect hugger. My whole philosophy is kind of like if someone isn't even in double A yet, I'll just I'll just trade them and move on to the next one, figure something else out because there's such a low hit rate for guys who are even just playing well in high A or low A, even double A, even if a guy's dominating down there. There's no telling what's going to happen when he gets even up a level or two to the major leagues. But something that I think would be important for the Mets if they do end up trading, I'm never trading Francisco Alvarez, no. but I, I would certainly listen to offers around Brett Bailey, Ronnie Mauricio, or any other prospect in the system, including Alex Ramirez, because if there's an opportunity, and I think there always are, to get players who are going to be with the team for more than just half a season. Yes. Rentals are something I'm terrified of because that's such a small window, and the player who's being traded knows that. Like Everyone knows the level of prospects they're traded for and the situation they're going into. We heard David Cohn talk about this, actually, we too. We did, yeah. You're very aware of that situation, and it's easy, especially as a bat, to press 
And when you're pressing, you're going to be swinging more pitches out of the strike zone. City Field is not the easiest place to hit. The Mets are not the easiest fans in the world to play for. Greatest fans on earth, don't get me wrong. But we're an ordinary bunch. If you trade big prospects for a player, you only have them for three months, and that first month is bad, <laughs> things could really actively spiral. We kind of saw that last season. We're passionate fans. Passionate, we're passionate fan. fans. Best we, fans on earth. I don't want to say we demand excellence, but we expect that you're going to play as good as you were before you were on the team. So with that... Trading for a rental does scare me if you're giving up a guy who's a clear top 50, top 60 prospect like Brett Bailey or Ronnie Mauricio, who both look like they're going to be Major League Baseball players. Their potential, their ceiling is still yet to be seen. Same with Mark Vientos. Did they say Vientos before Mauricio? I think it's Mauricio. Okay, so those three guys are the tradable assets, I'd say, right now in the Mets system. And they all have some things they do well. They'll have some things they don't do well. None of those guys are can't miss by any means. There is such a low hit rate of prospects between 15 and 100. You'd be shocked if you looked back at the old list. So I would not be afraid to trade any of these guys because this team with Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer can compete for a World Series. Next year, with those guys still on the team, they can again compete for a World Series. If you can get a guy who's going to be around for the next couple of years, say a Frankie Montes, Luis Castillo. Well, wait, 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 wait. Let me let me get to the next questions then, because oh. I think we're starting to get into it now. You're getting excited. I get it. We want to talk a little bit trades. It's starting to get possibly into that trade talk time, but that was probably the most asked question in the replies. Oh, was about trades for the last like three mailbags going back to May. You guys really can't wait to hear about trades. I've even gotten some DMs, guys. Once July hits, we're going to talk trade. But I'll, I'll throw some names out there. Sean, Matt. We had Wick ban the wave, which I also agree. Ban the wave. Thank you guys for asking this question. I'll give you some easy names. James will probably give you a little bit deeper cuts here. But guys like Frankie Montas, guys like Luis Castillo, those are obviously the big pitcher names that everyone's always looking for. They're going to demand a lot. They're going to demand some top, top prospects. The Mets can make that decision whether or not they want to do that. They might not even be interested at all. We have no clue. But those are definitely some of the bigger names on the pitching side that everyone's going to be involved in. And if you look at the hitting side for guys who aren't even just rentals, it's kind of kind of barren a little bit. You got AJ Pollock, who I, the White Sox are a complete dumpster fire, so there's a chance they start selling. He had an element to this outfield depth, I think. Yeah, I mean, Chris he's a good ball player. Pitching. Yeah, Randall Grichuk, who I don't really care for that much at all. But I don't even know if outfield is. We probably are looking more at you know third base, just just a bat that can maybe even fill in at the DH spot. To help us out a little bit. But those are the kind of the players that pop up seemingly out of nowhere. Like you talk like Jonathan Scope. Like is that yeah. someone you're thinking of? Like there's not that really that many sexy CJ Crone who And to be fair, we didn't necessarily know if we were gonna get Javi Baez until a few days before the deadline happened. Yeah. So these trades take a little bit more time to develop, especially with bigger name players, because of the you know, capital that's gonna be coming back. Also this year, the fact that there are more teams in the playoffs. That's happening this year, correct? Yeah, that's happening this year. There's going to be more teams that think they're still in it. Like, I talked about AJ Pollock. I don't think the White Sox or, and uh, Jerry Reinsdorf are going to admit that they're out of it until they are out of it, until they're scraping and clawing their way through no-shift baseball and burning all their starting pitchers in September when they're nine games out. It's just, it's, it's hard. David Peralta, like, are these names really getting you jazzed? Nelson Cruz, like, maybe if the Nationals are willing to get rid of him, which I would imagine they are because they're terrible. Uh, like, the names right now that we can give you that you don't already know. Josh are, Bell, Robbie Grossman. Like, yeah, they're not going to excite you. But as we get closer and closer, we will definitely, like, probably have almost a dedicated episode, maybe, just talking about possible trade prospects. At least, at least 20, 30 minutes of one. Because when it does get to trade deadline season, it's going to be hot. The hot stove heats up. The guy I mentioned a few weeks ago who is still one of my favorite trade candidates for this Mets team is Mitch Hanniger. On a one-year deal, he just plays corner outfield. They're probably not going to have to give up that much to get him. Definitely none of the prospects I just mentioned. You could probably get him for a couple guys in your rookie ball low-A team. He's someone who I think would be a nice thumper. 
nice right-handed bat for this Mets roster. Definitely. And then let's wrap up the mailbag here with a little bit of a fun question. This one comes from Vega at CVega123 on Twitter. Best memory of being at the ballpark, either Shea or City. James, I'm going to let you take this one first. Mine actually definitely comes from Shea. It was a Friday evening, I believe during the 2006 season, Mets-Yankees Subway Series. Mets sustained a nice little comeback in the ninth inning against the Yankees at this game with my dad. And David Wright, a young David Wright, a burgeoning star, comes to the plate against Mariano Rivera, Laces a double over the center fielder's head. Walk-off win. Mets beat the Yankees. I think the one that immediately comes to my mind, and maybe because it's more recent, has to be the 2015 World Series, the game that we did oh. win at home. Oh, we, we all get to go to the World Series games. Yeah, so, well, I did, so I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to brag here. Humble brag. Was at the World Series, no big deal. The game where they won, David Wright hitting the home run, Noah Syndergaard whizzing one by Alcides Escobar's head. I know the series didn't end the way that we wanted it to, but that game was awesome. And seeing David Wright hit a home run in the World Series at City Field, that just, it felt right. It felt right in a career that ended up not being as great or not being as fortunate as we hoped it would be. That felt like a moment of like, ah, this is exactly what we should have been seeing all these years. And it was a great moment. Got to watch it with my dad. So that was cool. I think I've said this on the show before, but I'll just say for possibly new listeners out there, that was game two of the, was game two or game three? That was, that was game was three. game three, yeah. Mets returning home. Uh <laughs> No Syndergaard pitching, that crazy, crazy moment. On a Friday night, I'll say Escobar, like you mentioned before the game, I was watching the game with friends in college. And then that next morning was actually my mom's birthday. And I had like conjoined with my dad to get me myself a surprise flight home to get home, surprise my mom, you know, good son, Catholic boy. The Mets won that game. And that was just, I had never seen the Mets win a World Series game my entire life. It was a Friday night, Halloween weekend in college. I had way too much fun that night. Stayed out all hours of the night. The bartender at well, shout out Midway in Columbus happened to be a Mets fan. He was giving us anything we asked for. A crew of Mets fans showing up to the bar. I turn over the next morning in my bed, ten thirty. Missed my flight by a whole hour. <laughs> I had to go to the airport, Columbus International Airport. I don't, even, I don't even think it's international airport. I think it's just a Columbus airport. It's like basically the equivalent of a New York City train station. There's like no people there ever. I had to stand there on standby, but I stood there for two hours, ended up getting a flight home, making the mom's birthday. So it all worked out in the end. That's very on brand for you to cut it close with an airline. I didn't, I didn't cut this one close. Well, I missed, missed it. I missed this flight clear through by an entire hour. First flight I ever missed. I've never missed a flight. Fun fact. I've missed two. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm the guy who gets there three hours before the flight and I'm like, I'll just relax in the airport. I'll, I don't want any stress when I'm traveling. Yeah, well, different strokes for different folks. So that was our mailbag. Not bad for the first one. We do this probably weekly. That's not the first one. Well, first one now with yeah. the Mets, of course. Make sure you're following us at MetsUp so you guys can get involved in these. Like I said, we're going to do them about once a week. We want to hear your stuff. Give us your questions. We want to interact with you guys. So make sure you do. Now let's go ahead and preview that Marlins series, James. You're the pitching matchup guy. Hit me. Talking about Sandy Alcantara before, that's going to really stink. Friday yeah. night, 6.40 start time. Everyone be aware, not 7.10. 6.40 start time, half hour early. Love so that. make sure you set your clocks coming home from work, whatever, school. Um, I don't know. But we have Taiwan Walker on the bump. Taiwan Walker, who is the reborn, the reinvented, the renewed Taiwan Walker. This Taiwan Walker split change slider, forcing fastball Taiwan Walker. No reason he can't shut this team down again. Of course not. He's been great. And also, no reason the Mets will be able to hit Sandy Alcantara this time around. So we'll see what happens in that game. Hopefully a pitcher's duel. Saturday, we're facing all the pitchers we just faced. Chris Bassett for us. Trevor Rogers again for them. Sure. Should hit him. Yeah, hopefully. And the Marlins do not have a pitcher on the docket right now for Sunday. I believe... John, you can maybe be able to back me up on this. I think Daniel Castaño pitched Monday for them. I think you're right. That, so that I think he, right. that lines up for him. But the Marlins have so many guys coming on off the IL at any given time. 
Maybe it's Alizia Hernandez. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how long these guys are out. But I know Hernandez and Edward Cabrera are both on the IL right now and not out for like that long. Yeah. So maybe one of them, but it looks like it could be Castaño in a start spot. Maybe maybe they're saving that for uh, Max Myers' major league debut. <laughs> when I was at the game, the last Barnes game, I saw Daniel Castaño hanging out in the uh, tunnel. It seemed like he might have uh, been answering a call for your car's extended warranty. I couldn't believe that he was <laughs> taking it on speakerphone in public. What the hell? What, what kind of phone call do you have to get in public? Like a lawyer or a real estate agent? I don't know, but he had it on speakerphone Accountant? For, for everyone to hear, and I swear, I, I, I could have, I thought I heard, I would like to ask you about your card's extended warranty. I was like, you can't be taking this guy. <laughs> maybe he's a day trader. That was a day game. It was a day game. He was, Maybe he was making moves. I don't know. What about the last game of the series? Well, for the Mets, there's a possibility that's going to be Max Scherzer, but we're not really sure. And if not, that's going to be Trevor Williams because he just started our game on Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the Marlins. They are going to be a little bit better because Jesus Sanchez is now back in the lineup. Mm-hmm. He's recovered. Aguilar? Aguilar. I'm not sure if he's back yet, but he, okay, he is. Our producer, John, actually just filled us in. He is back. So the lineup will be stronger. By no means is it scary. But it is a better lineup than we saw. And, of course, they always have the Met killer, John Birdie, who we have to keep an eye out for. And we're going down to Miami to that ridiculously empty ballpark that just seems to always suck the life out of the Mets like a vampire every single time we head there. I've never been there. I would like to go one day just because I'm trying to see every single ballpark in baseball. I would save that one for the end. Yeah, save it for the end. But Miami, uh, just every time we go there, it feels weird. We had that the weird uh, games last year when we basically had the double-A AA and triple-A lineup playing and we somehow scratched out some wins. I'm hoping the Mets just... A nice easy series. I'd love to recap the next episode with some smiles and some happiness because I don't I don't like when we lose series and we have to talk about it. We're gonna feel it right away because this Sandy Alcantara game on Friday seems like it could be an inflection point for this Mets team. Similar to um that game, similar to that third Dodger game of that series yeah. and that angel the way that Angel series began after the way the Padres series ended, where Mets have not lost three in a row all year, as John so graciously pointed out earlier in this show. So I'm going to try the reverse jinx now. They can't beat Sandy, Al- Sandy Alcantara. There's can't, no way. Can't hit him. You can't hit the guy. He's a Cy Young winner. He's best pitcher in baseball best right now. Best pitcher in baseball. Certainly best pitcher in the National League. I don't know how you touch this guy. He's There's too no good. way. And the tie won't walk. The Magic's going to run out. There's, these aren't tangible changes like we've talked about. No way. Yeah, we're trying to uh, do a little bit of the reverse jinx there. But but realistically, I'm not now to be serious. This is an inflection point for this Mets team. Because if they can dig deep and find a way to stave off this losing streak against literally one of the best pitchers in baseball, that will show a ton of grit. It's grit that we've seen all year. Possibly we'll have Jeff McNeil back too, which would be fantastic. Maybe Seth Lugo rejoins the team also for this, give that bullpen some more strength. I don't know. This is I'm not, I'm not going to call it a big series because it's a Demar- the Marlins in June. Yeah, but I would like to see some good fight. At worst, let's win this one. Yeah, let's let's win the series. I think that should be the goal every single time, and the Mets have been doing that pretty much the entire year. So. By no means should this Astro series be doomsday for anybody. The sky is not falling. Houston, we have a problem? Eh, not really. Not really. I think this entire episode, we tried to at least give you guys that opinion that it's going to be okay. Also want to shout out for anyone who does not know, Sunday is the Mets' first, I think, only game on Peacock Okay, all year. So that's a noon start on Sunday. So be aware it's an early one. And 410 on Saturday. So no 7 o'clock games this series. And honestly, I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up this episode of the Mets Up Podcast, the official podcast of the New York Mets. Again, never going to get tired of saying that. So sorry, you guys have to listen to that forever, as long as we are keep continuing to do this. Make sure you're following us on all our social media, at Mets Up on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Subscribe to the Mets YouTube channel so you can see the video version of this, which I promise is going to look good. The graphics department, 
Beautiful job by them. Can't wait to see what that looks like on the YouTube channel. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, wherever you get your podcasts, drop us a rating, drop us a review, share it with your friends, share it with Mets fans, share it with non-Mets fans. We don't care. We just want people listening. It really does help grow the show. As well as make sure you follow me on Twitter at GiraffeNeckMark and James at James Chiano. Keeping it easy for you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. And we'll see you after the Marlins series. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.